0: The Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. Today, we are honored to be speaking with Professor Salim Tomari, who is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Birzeit University and currently the Shawaf Visiting Professor at the Center for Middle East Studies at Harvard University. He's also a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Palestine Studies and the Editor of Jerusalem Quarterly. Among his many works are The Mountain Against the Sea, published in 2008, Year of the Locust, Published in 2010, and most recently, The Great War and the Remaking of Palestine, published in 2017 by UC Press. Salim, this has been a long time coming. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, I want to speak first about the book, The Great War and the Remaking of Palestine. I want to start maybe with the title How was Palestine made before the Great War, and what were the distinctive
1: aspects of it being remade during the war? Palestine was a province, but not an administrative uh, area within the Syrian uh, provinces of the Ottoman Empire. So it was a very elusive and amorphous region that's corresponding to the area known as the province of Jerusalem, or Mutasarrif Lake of Quds Sharif. In other words, it was also known as Southern Syria. It was known as the holy part, or component of Bilad al-Sham, and so on. During the war, the contestation over Palestine and the holy places, and the attempts by the uh, colonial powers, by Britain and France and Italy in particular, as well later as Russia to use their connections with the minorities in Palestine and Syria and their claims for the protection of the holy places made the Ottoman leadership to react by extending the boundaries of what they called Philistine uh, to the area south of the Litani. So it corresponded more or less to the administrative area established by the British after the war and during the mandate for what became known as Palestine.
0: So we start to see the rough boundaries of what we now see as Palestine, Israel-Palestine, in, in the period of World War One.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So one of the things that's notable, I think, in this work, and maybe all of your work, is how you push back um, against this idea that the Ottomans were simply oppressors. Uh, yes. you show a sort of richer view of what they're what they're doing in in Palestine and in the empire as a whole so in in this book you suggest that someone like Ruhi al-Khalidi uh Jerusalem na- notable critic of Zionism um you say he can best be thought of as an Ottoman nationalist and often we think of maybe Arab nationalism and Ottoman nationalism as as separate things, maybe mutually exclusive. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those tensions and, and what you're doing differently.
1: Yes, uh, uh, Ruhi is a very fine example of this um, conflict within the minds of the Arab intelligentsia because Ruhi was very proud of his Palestinianness, of his Arab identity, of his language, but he was extremely loyal to the idea of the Ottoman bond and he served as an Ottoman bureaucrat in a number of positions. Uh, most recently was being consul in Grenoble, uh, in France. Uh, But he was uh, also a very important member of the parliament, Majlis al-Mab'uthan. Rouhi actually died in 1913, so he did not see the fissures and conflicts that emerged during the war. But what happened uh, in, in his period, as well as in the period of his uncle, Yusuf Diya khaldi who was also member of parliament, was this uh, duality between belonging to Bilad al-Sham, uh, the layered belonging to Bilad al-Sham, to Palestine and Jerusalem as the place of their birth, to Nablus, the place of their education, as well as to the Ottoman state, the Sultana, uh, with which they believed strongly in the bond of what was known as Osmanlilik or uh, Ottoman uh, constitutional identity that began to emerge after the first constitutional revolution in 1876. So these people were uh, in similar to the case of people like Bustani in Beirut, Muhammad Kurd Ali in Damascus, and many others in Baghdad, uh, Jerusalem, and Jaffa as being part of the, of the part and the whole at the same time.
0: Right, and so this idea of a divide is maybe something that's imposed after the fact more, more than it's present in their own lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the reference about Ottoman oppression, of course, was born uh, of real repression established uh, through the dictatorship of Jamal Pasha during the war and um, it was partly the product of Turkish xenophism, uh, but more so fear of secession, because this was a period when the minorities, and before that in the Balkan, in Greece, in Armenia, uh, began to belong to secessionist movements, and the Arabs were the last remaining major nationality within the sultanate uh, to maintain the prospective unity of the empire. So they were very afraid of the secessionist movement and Jamal in particular reacted harshly to what he saw as a potential collaboration with the French and the British and he saw any sign of uh, a search for autonomy, uh, such as the party which many of the Syrian intellectuals belong to, called the party of Ottoman decentralization as an enemy of the state to be uh, harassed and followed and so on.
0: So you mentioned Mohammed Kurdali, um, and in in the book you describe how um, he becomes involved in literary production for, for the Ottoman state during World War One, as part of these delegations um, of, of intellectuals, Arab intellectuals. Um, and so that there are sort of odes to Jamal Pasha and Enver Pasha uh, that they write. And of course, uh, Mohammed Kurdali, he'd go on to become one of the founding members of the Academy of the Arabic language in Damascus after the war. So this is a formidable figure of, of Arab nationalism in a lot of ways to what extent is the intellectual labor that the Ottoman state is promoting um, during during World War 1 to what extent is that propaganda and to what extent can we think about that as as politics or, or you know or is it impossible to draw a line between the two
1: no it's possible to draw a line i think uh, during the war uh, the um, whole idea of the Ottoman union uh, began to disintegrate. And the ideology propagated by the new Ottomans, which was called Osmanlilik or Osmania in Arabic, uh, to win the hearts and minds of non-Turkish citizens, began to wane because of the wave of uh, repression against dissident intellectuals and against uh, provinces that were seen as secessionists. So, one feature of this period, and one that involved the work of Muhammad Kud Ali, who was a Kurd originally from Sulaimani with a Circassian mother, and a, a very strong Ottoman loyalist, exactly like uh, Abu Khaldun, Sat al-Husari, Shukayri, and many, many intellectuals from this period. Right, and Satya al-Husari would go on to become this foundational figure
0: in Iraq, uh, yes, uh, with b- education both. and and right, he, I I read something that he he spoke Arabic with a Turkish accent his whole life.
1: That's yeah. right. Yes, and both actually, Muhammad Kudali and Sat Al Husari, uh, wrote in Turkish. The Turkish was their intellectual mm-hmm. tongue, although they were uh, prominent writers in Arabic. But I interrupted you. uh, This question of uh,
0: (laughs) politics versus uh, propaganda.
1: Yeah, so during the war, uh, both Jamal and Enver Pashas began to mobilize the Arab intelligentsia in support of the war effort. And they did this in several ways. One was the establishment of colleges such as Salahiyah College in Damascus and Jerusalem, which were meant to train uh, non Turkish young academics uh, and bureaucrats and future bureaucrats in um, the sciences and the languages that are necessary to become part of an Ottoman loyalist. And there was a very strong Islamic component. You see, by then, The Islamic component of Osmanlilak began to vie with the secular Ottoman uh, component. And the reason for that is because they were challenged from uh, the Hashemites and other groups that were challenging the Turkish Caliphate in Istanbul. So Islam became a very important component of Osman Linnik and of the educational system that the uh, uh, young Turks, the CUP, uh, were espousing. But they also did a, a number of practical expeditions to mobilize people. And uh, in this book, I refer to the so-called scientific expedition to Gallipoli. Uh, which in Arabic is called Al-Bi'tha Al-Ilmiya Ila al Al-Islamiyya, organized by Jamal Pasha through Muhammad Qudali, Ali to bring in scholars, journalists, writers, poets, and Islamic uh, uh, Imams to visit the war front. And in this visit, they pass by the industrial projects, war workshops, Uh, schools, training grounds in Anatolia and in Gallipoli to see how the war was proceeding. And the book is fascinating because it's part propaganda but part investigative journalism. And it is meant to mobilize the Arabs, the Syrians as they were called, uh, to support uh, the war effort. Then Enver became very jealous of Jamal as usual and he uh, sort of prodded uh, Muhammad Gurd Ali to organize another expedition this time to Medina to the south and it's called Al Rehla Al Anwaria uh, as you would expect it's named after Enver and full of poetry it was much more propaganda than the first expedition it's all poetry in praise of Enver Pasha and so on but the purpose actually was to establish a link with the Hashemites in Medina, with Sharif Hussain and his sons, uh, to dissuade them from, uh, from secession. And indeed, in this uh, volume of uh, journalistic writings, we find a number of meetings with Faisal, with the Sharif Hussein himself, in which the Ottoman bond was being stressed, and the war preparation in the southern front, which was in Kut al Amara in, in uh, Iraq, and in Sinai, which was called the Philistine, Jabhat Philistine, the, the Palestine front in Beersheba and uh, Sinai. So that was meant to mobilize people from the south. Uh, on the Hashemite side and on the Syrian side uh, to support uh, Enver and the war effort. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's an interesting alternative perspective because we're so familiar with the Hashemite narrative, which has won out in so many ways. Yes, uh,
1: they also, uh, I should remember, you should remember they put out a journal expressly addressing the Arab uh, hesitant uh, population or or uh, this was the ottomans that, that the ottomans they yeah. published a which which was edited by uh hamad Ali. ali called Al Sharq. Uh-huh. was financed by german money actually published in damascus and it's pure propaganda and the hashemites responded by another uh, newspaper called al-qibla which came out from medina also accusing the cup and the young turks of betraying uh, the Ottoman bond, of uh, undermining the Khilafah, and uh, bringing secularism to schools, and undermining Islam. So that was Al-Qibla.
0: So another chapter in the book that I found really interesting is about Adel Azar, the stalwart member of the women's movement in Palestine. She's involved in everything from charity toward the poor in wartime Jaffa to organizing winter clothing drives for rebels in the 1930s. And she was so respected that she became known as a zaime, right? A a boss. So she's been left out of uh, a lot of accounts of history of, of Palestine and the Palestinian women's movement. But you found this vivid source of her life in the form of a letter to her, her grandchildren. But we also have absences. You mentioned that all of her papers were destroyed in 1948. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her story and, and also the challenges of, of telling a history without national archives.
1: Adele Azar is a very interesting woman, um, not because of her leadership role, although that is important, but because she's one of the few unknown pioneers of the women's movement who were eclipsed later by m- much better known uh, peoples, much more articulate, people who wrote and published, associates Fuda Sha'rawi uh, and Zleekha Shabi, and Issam Abdelhadi in Nablus and so on. So she's one of the unknowns. And of course I happened, to, to have uh, her papers from her grandchildren uh, who supplied me with her, with her notes. And what I framed her diary with was the struggle for the education of girls and orphans in the First World War, in which she played a big role. And she was motivated by Two things. First, her sympathy for war orphans, because you remember Palestine, as in Syria, lost a huge number of its male population and population general during the war and famine. uh, Around one, between one fifth and one sixth of the population was, and a lot of those uh, were men. So that there were a lot of families who became uh, fatherless, a lot of orphans. So she was propelled by charity for orphans, but within the Orthodox movement, Christian Orthodox movement. And one, the second thing which propelled her were sort of uh, fear that the missionaries were taking over. Because all modernist schools at the time, with the exception of Ottoman, formal, Nizamiya schools uh, came from missionary groups trying to convert the population. There were missions to the Jews, there were Catholic missions, Protestant Syrian College in Beirut, at, at all levels, from kindergarten to universities, were being introduced by uh, Protestant and Catholic and Russian Orthodox missions to convert the population. They tried to convert the Jews to Christianity and the uh, Muslims to Christianity and ended up mainly stuck with the, with the Orthodox Christians to bring them to light into the Catholic and Protestant orders. So that, and of course the majority of Christians in the East including Palestine, were Orthodox. And there was a double kind of exclusion. The first exclusion was by the hierarchy which was um, Greek and excluded the Arab laity from making decisions about the endowments, the educational institutions, and the enormous uh, land holdings of the church. And Uh, the other one was the exclusion or or the attempt by the missionaries to bring in a so-called enlightened Western education to the natives. So they started these schools as a challenge to the missionaries and to the fate of the orphans. And she was a, a local woman who was very vigorous and very courageous, and she's totally unknown. Nobody knows about this woman, and she wrote a diary. I mean, that's that's what's interesting about her. I mean, I'm sure there were many others, but she started very early during the war. She started her, her letter in 1910, 1911, and then she became a refugee in the War of 1948. And I write about the struggle of hers for orphanages for uh, progressive schools for girls i mean that was a very radical revolutionary act to do to bring girls uh, and give them skills because they became they were like trained in vocational skills to become employed so they were became part of the public uh, labor force and then she became a very important local woman, and they became known as the boss. And we have a picture of her appearing next to Mayor Haeckel in the 1940s in a public square where she gave a speech on behalf of the women of Jaffa. So she became very prominent, not only among the Orthodox associations, but within the women's movement in general. She became a representative for the Arab Women's Union, and she was sent to Cairo in 1936 to represent Palestinian Jaffa women on behalf of the Arab Women's Union to Huda Sha'arawi's Congress in Cairo. So I wanted to pick
0: up on one of these threads that you mentioned, which is 1948, which of course occupies such an important place in in the history of Palestine and, and the Palestinians. And I want to think about it in relation to archives. Because so often archives accompany states and I mean, not always, um, but with the case of Palestinian history, it's tricky in some ways because Palestinians remain stateless uh, without a, a strong state-backed archival infrastructure. Um, and of course, there are ways to get around this, right? There, there are the Ottoman archives, the, the court records, um, the Israeli state archives, um, including its abandoned property section. I think part of what's so interesting and in, in, rich about this book, but also all of your work is, is how you're creative in the sources that you use. In this work, we're, we're dealing with a letter like Adel Azar wrote to her grandchildren. We're dealing with other diaries. We're de- dealing with uh, personal papers, photographs. In other words, materials that might not make it into state archives. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sources and and how you've thought about them as part of your own work
1: well you you pointed out the the gist of the problem is that the Israelis who have a very uh, highly disciplined archival tradition within the Zionist movement which was of course a, a European uh, G- uh, Germanic phenomena to, to keep these And the Israelis inherited it from the early Zionist movement. And in the war, the Palestinians lost everything. So even compared to the poor archives which we have in Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon, maybe not Egypt, but in in Belaide-Sham and Iraq, the Palestinians did not even have the rubric of a, a state. And... We began to rely on the external sources, obviously. The British records, the Israeli uh, archival records, increasingly the Ottoman records, which now have become organized and accessible, less so the Egyptian records, but we had no records of our own. So this is was the incentive for looking at family uh, records, uh, family papers, as one source of uh, covering this void. And it began actually with the preoccupation and development of the oral history project, where you interview the remaining parts of people, survivors from the 36th rebellion, and as people growing old from 48th war, and uh, uh, covering the quotidian, social life in general, from oral his- history sources. But oral history now is being supplemented by looking at family papers, which are not exactly oral history. I mean, they are a lot of them were diaries, memoirs, uh, photographs, as well as records of daily life. And so you have in IPS, in University, in Quds, in Najah University now, a very important archival sources based on these uh, possessions. And I consider myself uh, a small screw in this operation, uh, which utilized a reading of social history through a biographical lens of family papers, memoirs, diaries, and so on. And my book actually is mostly based on this kind of uh, archival sources. So
0: we're speaking on May 15th of 2018, which is being recognized around the world as a day of remembrance and action for the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948. Uh, And we're speaking the day after the massacre of, of protesters approaching the wall in Gaza at this point. The IDF has killed at least 60 people and injured several thousand. So I wanted to connect the present moment to how we think about history. On a previous episode of of the Ottoman History podcast, Bashar Dumani said that writing Palestinians into history is almost inevitably a nationalist act. And one of the things that's so striking about your own work is that you're complicating nationalist narratives. And so I wonder is that a difficult position to be in, to be writing a history that is almost by, that is almost inevitably a nationalist act while also trying to nuance those nationalist narratives? Is, is that a difficult position to be in? Is that a, a vulnerable position to be in?
1: Why am I complicating the nationalist narrative?
0: Well, I think, you know, you're, you're showing how,
1: you know, there's this
0: narrative of, of the hardships of World War I um, sort of characterizing the entirety of Ottoman rule in Palestine. And so, you know, wh- one of the things that I think your work does so well is is show this rich patrimony of, of Ottoman culture in Palestine and how, you know, people
1: like Muhammad Kurdali. Well, and it's not only Ottoman, I mean, um, you're right in that the devil is in the detail because once you start examining people's biographical trajectories, you discover a great deal of variation in types of consciousness, in experiences of war, in looking back at the texture of the moment which challenges the retrospective way in which nationalist history and historiography has generalized from generalized perceptions, language, uh, uh, experiences. You see this in a number of uh, sources which I have addressed. One very interesting diary of Harf al the historian, who was, again, a, a very important uh, Ottoman officer. He was captured and sent to Siberia by the Russians during the 1915 Erzurum battle. And there he begins to write about the duality of his Ottoman and Arab national consciousness. And then he comes back, he escapes, comes back to Syria, joins Prince Faisal in jabal Druze, druz and then moves and becomes a mandate official in Palestine. So the several layers of transformation in his identity shows that Our projection to the past of a single Arab national transformation is too simplistic. And this repeats again and again with Muhammad Kurd Ali, another important person that I wrote about in this book by the name of uh, Rafiq al-Tamimi, who was an Ottoman official in Beirut, one of the few Ottomans who studied in the Sorbonne. He, He actually studied sociology in Sorbonne and became an investigator for the ottoman state and he was commissioned to do with the bahjat a very important kind of salname called beirut Velayeti which is now a very important ethnographic source for urban and rural life uh, at the turn of the century he was a loyal, ottoman loyalist he wrote in turkish his book was translated to arabic by somebody else but later on the mandate he became a palestinian patriot he joined the rebellion. He um, became very prominent as a leader of a militia called al Najada, which was based in Jaffa. He's uh, relatively unknown, so I try to bring him back to life and his experience. The point of all of this is two things. People experienced the formation of the new national identity and regional identity in installments. They, they came back and forth and they were partly reacting to circumstances, but partly also finding their place in a new post-colonial order, or in this case, a colonial order. The second part is that the regional local experience was paramount. Nablus was not Jerusalem. Jaffa had a cosmopolitan trans-Mediterranean identity, which differed from that of the inner cities. And many people who identify themselves as Palestinian patriots in the post-war period actually were also the product of their immediate uh, identity. And uh, most recently, we have a very important work by Adel Manna and also Samir Asmir, who rediscovered or wrote about the events of the 48th war, on the basis of a close reading of events that took place in the Galilee. And we now know that uh, the War of 48 was made up of a vast number of experiences, uh, which were subsumed under the major rhetoric of uh, Nakba, of ethnic cleansing, uh, of exclusion and exile, all, all of which of course happened, but they happened and experienced in a very concrete way, in a different way, depending on the locality in which people lived in.
0: You were trained as a sociologist. I wonder if you could speak about why you chose
1: sociology and
0: whether you see the methods of that discipline informing, or, or how you see that informing your work.
1: I had a grant to study sociology, so that explains my <laughs> early choice. I was fascinated by, early on when I was studying political science, by the works of Sirite Mills and Max Weber. These were my two great influences to read urban social history, which became my preoccupation. And of course, uh, classical sociology, uh, which I belong to, and history are not two separate disciplines. Sociology is social history. We cannot understand the social dynamics of urban life or rural life, or rural transformations, without understanding the historical trajectories and dynamics of, of people going through um, uh, these uh, frames. And, and that explains my interest in history. So I'm, I'm some kind of historical sociologist, I think you can call me that. But the problem is I got stuck in the Great War in the First World War, and I don't seem to be able to get out of it. Where did you want to go? Uh, I want to go to the uh, the 20s and 30s. Maybe I'll get there soon.
0: We'll we'll look forward to hearing more about that. One of my favorite details that emerges, and it actually has to do with the 20s and the 30s, it has to do also with Araf al Arif, whom you just mentioned. So when he was stationed in Gaza in the 1930s, he and Saime, his wife, who was in Jerusalem, they exchanged letters, and they wrote these letters in Ottoman. And you say that part of the reason they wrote in Ottoman, even a decade after the empire's collapse, was to maintain a sense of intimacy, but also
1: because it was part of their cultural patrimony. A lot of the people you write and read about uh, had this duality in their uh, intellectual production. They wrote often in Turkish, they read Turkish, I mean, in the case of Saima al-Burno, who was from a prominent family in Gaza, she was not in Istanbul. She was not a part of Anatolia. She went to public school in Gaza, and she was very proficient in Turkish. So it was the intellectual language in the same manner that French and English later became, you know, the language of expression for the post-war intelligentsia language was the, uh, Turkish was the language of the state, but it was completely suppressed by nationalist historiography. I I summarize it in one sentence. The whole Ottoman patrimony of the Syrian provinces was completely ruptured and suppressed through the lenses of the four dark years of the war, which were, uh, became associated with the Famine with exile through Safar Barlek and the tragedies of war and the major devastation it it did to the urban and rural areas in Syria and Palestine. So before that, of course, there was a flourishing culture. Uh, There was a symbiotic culture. Uh, There was newspapers. There were colleges in which the ruling ideology was ottoman and there was also an arab renaissance which was part of this ottoman project later on the arab renaissance is, is examined as a nationalist uprising against istanbul rule which is completely false so when you begin to reread these texts by Bustani and Muhammad Gurd Ali uh, and Yaziji and Rashid Rida and Muhammad Abdu, you, you know that we need to reclaim that space and remove the mystification that nationalist historiography has imposed on it. We, we completely swallowed the uh, uh, the British colonial, French colonial Uh, and Arab nationalist discourse that these were uh, dark centuries. So we were living under this illusion and of course it took the Balfour Declaration and the mandate to awaken people from that, but the, the nationalist geography continued and still continues until today. Uh, Salim, I want to thank you so much
0: for joining us today uh, and for your work over the years as a scholar and mentor to so many
1: in our community. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I want to remind our listeners that we will have a bibliography with relevant works on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, and also uh, encourage you to join us on Facebook, where we have over 25,000 listeners. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.